two whole chapters flying through this book. Uh, Open up to Genesis chapter 42. If you've got the Pew Bible this morning, um, we're going to be on page 37. There's a lot going on here. Um, So much just intricate narrative and and like just great one-liners and it's it's such a good story. Um, we're not going to cover everything today. So if uh, anything strikes you, if you have any questions, you can uh, go to slider.com and type in RevCDA and uh, we'll do a little Q&R afterwards. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And... Um, Maybe that feels really easy to understand when you're giving us commands, uh, when you're providing direction in in the Proverbs or uh, in the epistles, Uh, but then we read these stories and and they're they're interesting, they're compelling. Uh, I can imagine as as Trevor's reading, um, this being turned into a movie, the dialogue and the the character development. Uh, But maybe the question is like, what are we supposed to do with this? God, I pray that, that you would uh, just be your faithful self to us this morning and teach us that uh, as, as you've been um, working on my heart this week as I've studied, that, that that would be beneficial for all of us as we take a look at some things that we can learn from this portion of this story. Uh, I pray that we would be edified, that we would be challenged, God, that some of us maybe would... Um, would hear you speak uh, a word of command to us to make some changes in our lives today. Uh, And ultimately, God, I just pray that you would be glorified uh, by your people as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in 2020, we moved into a new house. Some of you were a part of our church community then, and and you uh, know some of this story. We bought a lot a few blocks north in Midtown, empty lot, and we contracted with a company in Boise that makes houses out of shipping containers. They had a factory down in Boise, and they made our house out of three shipping containers, and they shipped it up to Coeur d'Alene, and uh, we were responsible for building a foundation, and um, John Sawyers did that for us. And then they, they showed up with these shipping containers and they rented a crane and they lifted them onto the foundation and they just kind of legoed them together. And over the process of about another three weeks, we built a roof over the top of them and, and that was our house. So I think it was a, a Wednesday or a Thursday when the containers arrived um, on the lot and they were, they were put in place. And they were uh, watertight on the roof of the container, but in between the containers, there was a gap. And the intention was that the roof would be built over to cover the gap, and it was the middle of summer. Except that Sunday, we had this ridiculous rainstorm, and it just poured down rain. And I remember uh, sitting right there, hearing the rain just pummeling the roof of this building, and I got a text from the contractor saying, you should bring a shop vac with you when you get here. And so I arrived at the house after church and um, the rain had 
come into the building through the seams and the containers, uh, poured down the interior walls, all the way into the crawl space, and there was about this much water in our crawl space. Our crawl space is covered in plastic, and so it was just like a terrible swimming pool down there. And so, uh, me and, and some, some friends from church, we got shop vacs and fans and sucked all the water out and dried it. It was a very um, traumatic event. <laughs> but it was over. We fixed it. Until about nine months later, our girls, for a while, I, was, I had plans to build them some bunk beds but hadn't got around to that yet, and so their mattresses were just sitting on the floor of their bedroom. And um, I forget the details, but someone got up to change the sheets and lifted up the mattress, and the bottom of the mattress and the top of the floor was covered in mold. And so we, you know, threw away all of those sheets, <laughs> and, and uh, I thought, oh man, I gotta clean this up, and so I started we had a little bit of extra flooring left over, so I started pulling planks that were moldy off of the floor. And underneath those planks, the subfloor was covered in mold. And so I ended up having to take the entire floor off and scrape and, you know, um, use chemicals and paint and all of the things that you do to get rid of mold. Because that that traumatic event that happened nine months earlier, that wasn't just an isolated event. It was something that had consequences that, unbeknownst to us, were not adequately dealt with. We didn't take care of the problem. We didn't know the problem was there. And so it festered for a long time until it finally just sprouted up on our floors. And then we had to deal with it. What I want to talk about this morning is the consequences of not dealing with sin in your life. By analogy, sin is like that mold that sits in the darkness that you don't even know about. If you don't deal with sin, eventually it will destroy you. And I want to show, in, based on this story, I want to show four ways that it will destroy you. First the thing is it catches up with you. The sin will catch up with you. The second thing is it will plague you with guilt. The third thing is it will expose your idols. And then fourthly, it blinds you to God's kindness. So first off, sin will catch up with you in its work to destroy you. In the first 17 verses of chapter 42, I'm not going to read all of it again today because we spent some time looking through it, but we see Jacob's family in the midst of famine. They don't have any food, and so they hear that there's food in Egypt, and Jacob sends his boys down to Egypt to get food. And coincidentally, air quotes, they meet Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but because he has been thoroughly converted into an Egyptian, his, his hair and his clothing and his, probably the, his makeup is Egyptian, they don't recognize him. He's also 20 years older than he was last time they saw him. And he treats them harshly, the Bible says. He accuses them of being spies. So what's going on here? 
Is it possible that, that Joseph is just being vengeful? Like he's just a jerk. He's getting back at his brothers for all the evil things that they did to him. I don't think that's the case. And here's why. In, back in chapter 41, verses 50 through 52, we read, two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardships and my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word forget and Ephraim sounds like the word fruitful. And I think what we're seeing here is that Joseph is coming to terms with the circumstances of his life. His primary orientation, the way his life faces is towards God. He's filtering his experiences through his relationship with God. He's recognizing that God has been with him this whole time and that he's surrendered to God's wisdom, even with regard to the, brothers that, the evil that his brothers did to him. And so my hunch is that at this point in the story, Joseph has, ver has forgiven his brothers in his heart. He's going to verbally forgive them and welcome them back into relationship later. But I think that internal work that God has worked in him has been done already. And I think this is, this is a side note, but it's helpful for us. If you've been deeply harmed by someone, and make no mistake, Joseph has been deeply harmed by his brothers, you can choose to have your life shaped by that harm, by the way that person or people harmed you. You can make that your constant companion, or you can surrender it to God. You can lay it down at the feet of Jesus and let him heal you. And I think Joseph has already done this. I think he has come to peace with his situation and with the harm that his brothers have done to him. So what are we seeing here in chapter 42? I think what we're seeing is a test. Joseph is testing his brothers because the undealt with sin that is between them has ruined their reputation. Because of the harm that they have done to him, Joseph can't trust them. What if they try to hurt him again? What if they lie or manipulate? What if they are the same people that they were 20 years ago when they hurt me? They can't be trusted. And so Joseph begins a series of tests to ascertain whether or not their character is any different than it used to be. But the thing about this is that these men have no expectation that they would ever have to deal with this sin that they committed against Joseph ever again. There's a story a little later on in Numbers. The, the people of God are about to enter the promised land. It's, it's right before the story of, of Jericho, if you're familiar with Joshua and then the people going into Jericho and conquering that city. They are on the other side of the river, uh, the, the Jordan River, and two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben, Reuben Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, I think, should have wrote that down, um, are on the other side of the river, and they see the land, and they go, you know, this is a pretty great land. We don't really want to go over the river and conquer part of that land. We would just as soon stay here. And, and Moses gets really upset with them, and he says, you know, this is the reason why your parents got sent to the wilderness for 40 years. You need to go into the land. You, need to, you can't be afraid of the people of the land. And they said, oh, no, 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 we're not afraid. We still want to go in and help our brothers conquer the land. But when we're done, we would love to settle over here because it's good land for our cattle. And so Moses agrees to this. But then he says in Numbers 32, he says, but if you don't do this, 
If you don't go and help your brothers, you will certainly sin against the Lord. Be sure your sin will catch up with you. If you have a King James Bible, it says your sin will find you out. Think for a second about how crazy and improbable it is that all of these things have happened by chance. All of the little bits of the story that we've seen with Joseph and his brothers and now meeting together. We've talked about God's sovereignty over and over again in this story. God is orchestrating these circumstances, mostly uh, to save these people, but also in this point in the story so that these men will have to confront their sin. This dark, hidden part of their lives that they don't tell anyone about, it comes back to haunt them. In Galatians 6, we read, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Sometimes we, we, in our culture, phrase this kind of thinking with the word karma, which is a, it's a Hindu idea that there's some kind of law of reciprocity of the universe where if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. And, and that rolls off into all kinds of weird distorted thinking. But it's very different from what the Bible says because scripture teaches us that there isn't some kind of immaterial law of reciprocity of the universe. The reality is, is that our sowing what we reap is a consequence of God's personal offense at sin. D.A. Carson says, in every sin, it is God who is the most offended party. When we sin against people, we are, maybe we're abusing God's creation. Maybe we're not honoring a creature who bears God's image. Maybe we're disregarding God's commands. Uh, We're definitely placing ourselves on the throne of our lives instead of acknowledging that God is the king of our lives. David understands this when he writes in Psalm 51, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. Now, David has just committed adultery with a woman, stolen her from her husband, and to cover it up caused him to be killed in battle. So there's obviously some sin against some other people happening here, right? But he identifies that ultimately my sin is against God. Every evil committed against yourself or another human being or the rest of creation ultimately rolls up to God as the one who declares it evil. The fact that God runs this universe dictates what's right and wrong. And when we do not behave according to God's character, his, his goodness, his justice, whether or not we can identify human victims of our sin, we also sin against God. And God's not going to let that go. And this is good news for those of us that see injustice in the world, right? Like if, if you are someone that, that believes very strongly about a certain, um, a certain cause, maybe the cause of the orphan or the widow or the refugee or the unborn child or any number of evils and wickednesses that we see in our world and you, you yearn for justice to be done, justice will be done. No one ultimately gets away with evil because every evil is an evil against God. 
and God is going to take care of it. Someday your sin will catch up with you. And this is what these men find out on this day in chapter 42. But the second way that your sin will destroy you if it's not dealt with is it will plague you with guilt. In verse 18, we read, on the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God, do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be confirmed and then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, obviously we're being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but, he would, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. So here's Joseph's test. Will the brothers sacrifice Simeon to save their own lives? They could just leave and never come back. Say, too bad, Simeon. Joseph needs to know, has their character changed since he last saw them? Are they still willing to give up their brother? John Walton says, by keeping Simeon, he gives them a chance to abandon one of their brothers to prison and slavery as they previously did to him. And this, I think, this specific test sparks something in the hearts and minds of these men because they immediately think about their sin against Joseph. You know why this is happening to us? Because of that thing we did to our brother. They let us know in their dialogue that Joseph pleaded with them and that they wouldn't listen. <laughs> Reuben leans into a little bit of self-righteousness and goes, I told you not to do it. It's not helpful. This guilt over the way they have treated Joseph has lived with them for 20 years. Maybe it's been under the surface. Maybe they've been unaware of it sometimes, but guilt doesn't just go away by itself. At this moment, when they're faced with a similar opportunity to make a choice about the fate of one of their brothers, it floods back. John Chrysostom says, this you see is what sin is like. When it is done and takes effect, then it shows the excess of its own impropriety. Just as an inebriate imbibes great quantities of drink without feeling any harmful effects of the wine, but later comes to know the extent of the damage from his exploits, so too with sin. When it is committed, it clouds the mind, and like a dense fog, it blinds the intellect, but later conscience is stirred and flays the mind unmercifully with every kind of accusation, highlighting the impropriety of what was done. Chrysostom basically says, when we are committing sin, it seems fine, but later on, we begin to regret it. And this is blatantly obvious to anyone who is familiar with sin, right? I think we can all think of opportunity or times we've had in our lives where we have done something sinful and wrong and thought it was fun or good or didn't think much about the consequences. And then afterwards, oh man, I can't believe I said that. What was I thinking? You know, that's just not, that's just not who I am usually. Because sin deceives us. It lies to us. And then it wrecks us with guilt. You can imagine that they probably didn't talk about this thing that they did to Joseph hardly ever. 20 years have gone by. They've gotten used to their father's broken condition over the loss of his son. 
They've married, they've had children of their own. There's been lots of life circumstances that have been good, that have kind of dulled the pain of their guilt. They've gotten on with their lives. But guilt over sin doesn't just go away. In Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Telltale Heart, the narrator talks about his process of planning to kill and murder a man, how he commits this murder and then buries his body under the floorboards of his house, how the the police come to investigate because someone hears a shriek in the night and he tells them that he woke up from a dark dream and he was the one that made the shriek and the the police seem totally satisfied with that explanation and they're just kind of shooting the breeze, chatting with him in his house. The narrator says that he has gotten away with this murder except then he begins to hear the dead man's heartbeat under the floorboards and it's louder and louder and louder. And over the course of this conversation with the police officers that he is effectually fooled, he's driven mad by the sound and he confesses to the murder. This is the way guilt works. There are two kinds of guilt that we learn about in the scriptures. The first one is objective guilt. This is the fact that you have committed an evil action. And if you ever read Leviticus, which you totally should, it's super fascinating and important to the story of the Bible. There's all of these offerings that are for guilt. You have, you have done a bad thing and this offering is meant to address the objective reality of the wrong that you have done. But then there's also subjective guilt and that's the feeling of being guilty because of your sin. The New Testament often connects this to the state of our consciences. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. Paul says he has no sense of indwelling unrepentant sin. His conscience is clear. This is the life that we want. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. See, it's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross who who both satisfies our objective guilt, the wrong that we have done by paying for it by his blood and cleanses our conscience, gives us the subjective reality that our sins have been paid for and our conscience is clear. And the reality about guilt is that it actually becomes a gift from God. It's meant to stir up in us a need to confess and repent from sin. Paul, again in 1 Timothy 4, says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. The person that no longer feels the guilt of their hidden sin is in trouble. I used to, when I, when I was much younger, I worked at Qdoba, and we would get there really early in the morning for the lunch rush and cook rice and beans and chicken and steak and all of the things that everybody loves. And we would cook enough to get us through lunch. But the thing was, is we couldn't put all that food out on the line. There wasn't enough room for it, so we had a warmer that we would make extra and we would put it in these metal pans and covered in aluminum foil in this warmer. And this warmer kept all of the food at 140 degrees because that's what it has to be to be safe, to pass your health inspection. 
And when you first started working at Qdoba, you would be told, hey, go back and get some more chicken. We're about out. And you'd go to the warmer, and you'd open it up, and you'd feel this wave of hot air come out of the warmer. And you'd like reach for some towels, and you'd kind of grab the edges of the pan and try to pull it out without hurting yourself. But after about six months, you'd just reach in and grab the 140-degree metal pan and take it to the line because you had seared your fingers. You didn't feel anything anymore. When we ignore the pain of our guilt long enough, it can sear our consciences and we don't feel it anymore. First Timothy, again, Paul's full of wisdom here to Timothy. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. It's possible for us as Christians to envision the people of the world ignoring their God-given consciences until they no longer speak to them. But both of these warnings from Paul about a seared conscience and rejecting the good conscience and shipwrecking your faith, they're both directed at Christians. They're both directed at people who have claimed allegiance to Christ. They've departed from the faith. They have shipwrecked their faith. The pinging of our conscience when we are guilty of sin is a gift from God. It is for our benefit that we are being tormented by guilt. It is meant to get us to move to action and response. One of my favorite things about my smartphone is the reminder app. I don't have a very good memory. And there are a lot of things that I want to be um, aware of and practice. One of the things that I try to practice is an an evening prayer practice where um, I spend a few minutes kind of rehearsing the events of the day, asking God to show me where he was at work, showing me where I have fallen short, asking to be forgiven for that sin and to kind of tidy up my day before I go to bed. And I guarantee I will forget that every single night except my phone pings at me. It says, it's time, it's time to do your prayer of examine. Many of us use those kind of triggers for physical fitness. It's time to go to the gym. You haven't gotten enough steps in today. That kind of stuff can get annoying, can it? Shut up, Fitbit. But it's there to prompt us to action. It's there to get us to do something. And if we ignore it long enough, we shut it out and shut it off, it's no longer any benefit. And I just wonder this morning, do you feel that? Is, is there some kind of unrepentant, undealt with sin that is weighing on you this morning? Right now, there, is there a thing that you've been hiding that the Spirit of God is saying, this is this thing? This is what he's talking about. I would just encourage you, don't ignore that. Don't take steps away from the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Lean into his voice and deal with it. So if you do not deal with your sin, it will destroy you. The, the third way that it destroys us is it exposes our idols. In chapter 43, 
The brothers get back home with their food, and eventually it runs out. Jacob says, hey, go back and get us some more food. But in order for the family to get more food, Benjamin has to go with them. Joseph had made this a condition of their return. In order to get Simeon back, in order to get more food for the family, they have to bring Benjamin. Judah makes this clear, but then Jacob like blows up at him. Why have you caused me so much trouble? Israel asked. Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? They obviously didn't know that this was going to transpire. Jacob's anger is a sign that there is an idol in his life. We tend to get angry when someone touches our idols. An idol is anything that we must have for our contentment or happiness apart from God. Tim Keller says, if you need something in addition to God to make you happy, that is your true king. And for Jacob, after the loss of Joseph, Benjamin has become an idol. He cannot lose Benjamin. It will destroy him. And this also highlights the interconnectedness of our sin. It's it's not Jacob's sin that has created this idol. It is his son's sin. Their unrepentant sin has been the catalyst for this man's idolatry. You can imagine Jacob's fear of losing Benjamin not being sourced in knowing that his sons did a terrible thing, but because he believes that some random wild animal killed Joseph. The sons have lied to him for years and allowed this irrational fear to grow up in him and to turn Benjamin into an idol. We need to realize that we are not only stained by the sins that we commit, we are also stained by the sins that are committed against us. Jacob has been deeply hurt by his sons and, that, and he has let that hurt shape him in negative ways. We pursue idols through guilt and through hurt. I just want to throw out a few diagnostic questions to help us figure out if there are idols in our hearts. Number one, what, what am I preoccupied with? You know, when you, when you have an opportunity to just be alone with your thoughts, what do you think about? Number two, what do you want to preserve or avoid at all costs? We see this with Jacob. He cannot lose Benjamin. It is unacceptable for this circumstance to happen. Number three, where do I put my trust As long as I have enough money in my savings account, as long as my job is secure, as long as as I feel loved by my family, whatever it is, what is that non-negotiable thing that you require for your trust? Number four, what do I fear most? What keeps you up at night with fear? Number five, if blank does or does not happen, do I get angry, frustrated, anxious, resentful, bitter, or depressed? This is, this is so helpful. If you can ask the question, why am I so angry right now? Where is this coming from? And sometimes you have to keep asking that question. Well, I'm angry because the dog, blah, 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 blah. Well, why does that make you angry? Well, because da-da-da-da-da. Well, why does that make you angry? And usually four or five whys down, you will get to the root of your control issues or your fear. What is the idol in your life? 
Last question, what am I willing to lie about or hurt someone else for in order to have? 20 years ago, Jacob's sons had an idol of power and prominence and control that Joseph was threatening. And so they dealt with it. And this results in Jacob's idol of fear and control centered on Benjamin. Judah speaks up and convinces his father to let Benjamin go. And Judah's story is really important here. And I think we're going to focus more on it next week. But then they head back down to Egypt. And interestingly, and John Walton points this out again, in the products that the brothers carry, they have become the caravan merchants going to Egypt with one of Rachel's sons in tow. They're carrying a a bunch of gifts down to this Egyptian ruler to appease him, and they're the same kind of gifts that all the traders took to Egypt when they carried Joseph to prison. And the question at this point is, will they continue to serve their idol? Will they continue to value power and control and their own safety over their brother? Will they do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph? Undealt with sin exposes our idols. And the last thing that I want to share this morning is undealt with sin blinds you to God's kindness. I just want to highlight a couple of verses back in 42, 27. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, my silver has been returned. It's here in my bag. And their hearts sank. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, what has God done to us? A few verses later in, in verse 35, as they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his bag of silver. And when they and their father saw the bags of silver, they were afraid. In 43, verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to his steward, take the men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. This man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, we have been brought here because of the silver that was returned to our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. Listen to how irrational these men are. This this man who runs the entire nation of Egypt and is in charge of this giant food program He wants to take our donkeys. Really? You think that's what's going on here? See, they they can't see straight. They can't think clearly. There are multiple clues throughout this story that should get Joseph's brothers to key in on the fact that something is happening. The gift of their silver. The steward saying that your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your bags. The invitation to dinner. The ordering of the brothers by age. These are all points where God, through Joseph, is pouring out his kindness on these men and they can't see it. They're blinded by their own sin and the way that is shaping how they see and interpret the circumstances of their lives. These men don't have a posture of faith. They can't see God at work, even when there are clues everywhere. See, their sin has made them cynical. Dick Keyes says cynicism has to do with seeing through and unmasking positive appearances to reveal the more basic underlying motivations of greed, power, lust, 
and selfishness. The assumption of the cynical person is that everyone has ulterior motives. No one is really that kind. No one really cares about other people. There's no such thing as a free lunch. The unrepentant sin in the lives of these men is what is fueling their cynicism. And I think it blinds them and any of us living in unrepentant sin in two ways. Firstly, these men know that their own secret sin, they know it well, and they have to assume that everyone is just like them. You experience fear, shame, lack of joy, lack of fulfillment, lack of confidence in your calling. If that's coming from, from unrepentant sin, then you look out to other people and you must assume that everyone is just like me. Everyone must be self-serving or narcissistic or greedy or driven by lust or power hungry because that's my experience of life. See, these men recognize the own evil that lives undealt with in their hearts and because of it, they just assume this guy's out to get us, God's out to get us, all of this is bad. And secondly, they can't believe that God is working in their lives because they know that they don't deserve it. Maybe you felt this way, that God is not going to bless me, God is not going to act in kindness towards me because I am a bad person, I have done a bad thing, God is punishing me. Surely that's how God must see me. Romans 2, 4, Paul says, or do we despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The very circumstances that God is orchestrating and the kindness that is being displayed is designed to get them to repent from their sin and bring about restoration of the family. And they are too blinded by their sin to see it. When you don't deal with your sin, when you leave it in the darkness, it will destroy you. It catches up with you, it plagues you with guilt, it exposes your idols, and it blinds you to God's kindness. So where does that bring us in this story? We see, we end with God and Joseph both acting in the lives of these men to bring about their repentance. This comes from a place of love from God. He loves, these are his chosen people. He, he is planned to have them start this rescue project that's gonna culminate in Jesus. And it comes from a willingness to forgive by Joseph. Joseph, we will see as we read on, wants to forgive his brothers, wants to believe the best about his brothers. He's not at a place where he can trust them yet. We'll see that next week. He's got some more tests, but he is working towards that goal. If you, if you resonate with that this morning, if you are living in a state of undealt with sin, if you are experiencing these, experiencing these things as a consequence of that sin, you need to know that God loves you, that your sin has been paid for objectively by Jesus on the cross and that your sins can be forgiven. Maybe you've never given your heart to Christ before. You haven't sworn your allegiance to Jesus before. You can do that this morning and have your sins paid for. All of the debt that you've accumulated over your life can be forgiven today by Christ. 
But if you're a Christian here and you have been carrying sin that you have not dealt with, that is hidden in the darkness of your heart that maybe nobody knows about, turn from that sin this morning. Use this opportunity to confess it. Confess it to God and then confess it to those you have sinned against. Do it today, like before you leave this place if possible. Psalm 32, David writes, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. David knows something by experience that when the time that he had committed a grievous sin, when he had refused to repent from that sin, there were consequences. There were consequences in his soul. There were consequences in his body. He said his bones felt it. This is what sin does to us. But he said when he confessed his sin, it wasn't, and then I was put on a repayment plan, or then I was put in detention, or then God said, well, maybe. No, God forgave his sin. When we confess and repent of our sin, we, our sins are forgiven. One more quote from John Chrysostom because he's my favorite. Be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. So that we would be, all be people that are quick to recognize the sin in our lives and quick to confess and repent it from it. But if you've held on to some sin that you keep secret, that you keep hidden, just know that it is destroying you. And the invitation today is to get rid of it, to give it over to the Lord, to bring it out into the light, and to be free from it. Let's do some q and I wonder how awkward it was when Israel comes to Egypt and Simeon finds out that his dad would rather leave Simeon in prison in Egypt than risk losing Benjamin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, that is awkward. Um, we see something in Jacob here, right? Like he is, he is still a broken man. He is still a work in progress, right? Like he... He freaks out in, in chapter 42. He says, uh, let's see, where's it at? It's, it's me that you make childless in 36. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. <laughs> He's, we've watched him come so far as a follower of God, right? He's, he's matured in so many ways. He's, he's discarded uh, foolish ways of thinking and misconceptions about God, and he's put his faith 
in Yahweh in really powerful ways. We've seen that in the story, but, but there's this thing that he can't get rid of, and it has to do with Rachel and her early death and all kinds of other complicated things in his life, but he just doesn't love his sons equally. He just doesn't love them all the way he should. He plays favorites up to the very end. I just, we don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but I, I just, I, I wonder, like, are there things that they're just going to be carried, you know? They're just, there are things that we deal with that harm us, that shape us, that are just going to be hard to shake. I think as I talk to saints much older than myself, I find that to be true. That there are, there are parts of the character that have been malformed just early on in life that as much as we rely on Christ, the road is hard and long. Jacob's got another like 30 or 40 years to live, so maybe he works it out by the end of his life. But at this point, even after all of this progress in trusting Yahweh, he's still got these parts of his soul that are broken. I think that's probably true of all of us. This is what I love about the scriptures is they are real. This is the story of real people. We're going to take communion this morning as we always do. Um, Charles Spurgeon said when talking about David and his sin with Bathsheba, when the time came for David to finger his harp, perhaps he did so and went through a song or a psalm, but he could never reach to the essence of true praise by pouring out his heart before God while, in, while the foul sin was hidden in his bosom. How could he? His psalms and his prayers were silenced before God. Whatever sound he made for his heart did not speak and God would not hear him. As we come together, we will worship, we'll sing, we'll remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Just another encouragement, don't come to this table with unconfessed sin. Get rid of it. Take the time to bring it before the Lord, to bring it out into the light. And don't just stop there. We, as, as much as we need to insist that sin is primarily a sin against God, if you've sinned against other people and you're hiding it from them, if they're here this morning, tell them. If they're not here this morning, make plans to find them and tell them. Confess to them. Get rid of it. Don't pretend everything is all right in the world and sing the praises of King Jesus with hidden, unconfessed sin in your heart. Get rid of it. And I would encourage you to, if, if, you, uh, if you need to do that, you can come to the front, you can kneel in prayer on the prayer rugs, confess your sin to God, be free from it today. Don't let it continue to destroy you. I think sometimes there's a, there's a fear of being found out in the church. The reality is, is we've all been found out already. God knows. And God's love for you is greater than you can imagine. And so what better place to be free of your sin, to be open and repentant, than in a group of people that are also indebted to the love of God for the freedom that they have from their sin. There's no shame, there's no embarrassment. Like Chrysostom said, the shame is in the hidden sin, it's not in the repentance. Repentance from sin is an occasion to rejoice.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.